6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. These five warnings are going to be the main pillars for us in this. All five are a unit. They go together and they will complement each other. There's one of these that causes a lot of confusion, but let's keep it in perspective. Each of these five warnings builds upon the other. Each intensifies until the fifth one is a final capstone. The writer relies heavily on Israel's exodus as an example or type of individual Christians. The wilderness wanderings. Paul in his letter to the Romans in chapter 15 verse 4 says, Whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learnings that we through the patient and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Everything in the Old Testament is written for us as Christians. That's one of the great tragedies in the common church is that people think, well, the Old Testament is superseded by the new. No, 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 no. It's one book. They're all, they all tie together. The Exodus generation was a redeemed people. They failed to heed God's instruction and was judged for its disobedience. Over a million people were redeemed. Only two inherited. And Moses wasn't one of them. Man, that ought to get our attention. What's going on here? Five warnings. All were written to believers. They do not represent any chance of loss to the past aspect of salvation, which is called justification. That's not under threat. That's a done deal. You need to understand that all the way through. Thus, the eternal security of the believer is assured. This is not an issue. That's where people get confused. The warnings admonish believers to press on and obtain all that God has promised to the faithful overcomer. That's what it's all about. The warnings represent the very real possibility of the loss of privileges or rewards that are after the believer. And this will all be revealed at the judgment seat of Christ. We all talk about the rapture, the harpazo is going to take place. Great. What happens next? Well, on the earth, well, we got the great tribulation and all that. Wait, wait, wait. Up in heaven, what's going on? The first thing that's going on is the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone before that judgment seat will be saved. But the diversity of rewards could be enormous. And the only tears in heaven, I believe, will be because of lost opportunities. Not for sin or sickness. That's not going to be there. No, no. What would, why are there tears in heaven then? Why is God wiping away the tears from their eyes? Because they realize the, what the opportunities they blew. Oh, if I had just realized. Boy, would I have lived my life differently. Really? Well, let's pay attention. Huh? To whom is this written? The original recipients were Christians. Each warning will substantiate that fact. The correct interpretation of the entire book hinges on the answer to one question. Were the people addressed believers or unbelievers? Saved, unsaved, or half-saved? I'm being facetious. Two dozen times the author includes himself in the warnings and admonitions. We, us, whatever the author... <laughs> Was the author saved? Yes. Were the reader saved? Yes. That's the, the, uh, and later in chapter 10, 
I can ask you the question, does God urge an unconverted, half-saved professor to hold fast to his false profession? I don't think so. And that's what he's asking them to do, which means they're obviously not unconverted. They are converted. He's telling them to hang in there. So why these warnings? Because God in his love and mercy saw fit to move the author of Hebrews to warn his readers. This letter God put in your laps to warn you. His love has caused him to put this in your laps. The author who wrote the letter loved his recipients enough to warn them of the impending danger. This is a, la this is a labor of love. Don't let the urgency of it hide the fact that it's motivated by passion on your behalf. God wanted future readers also to understand the grave danger that accompanies apostasy, and it ain't losing your salvation. What is at stake? What are these believers going to lose, forfeit, or suffer? Not salvation. John 10 makes that clear, verses 28 and 29. Rewards of the judgment seat of Christ is at issue. We cannot escape this by applying it to other people. The burden of, the, of Hebrews is not the rescuing of sinners from hell. That's not the burden. It's the bringing of sons to glory. Five major warnings were encountered. The danger of drifting, the danger of disobedience, and then there's a group here at Progress to Maturity. And some lists make six, and they make first the chapter five one a, a separate danger of its own. We're going to tie them all together because we think they go together. But on the, the most troublesome passage in the entire book is chapter six, verses four through eight. A lot of people read that out of context and say, oh my goodness, I can lose my salvation. No. There are 16 different views of chapter six. And we're going to just focus on three of those. And I, I'm going to suggest that if you're paying attention as we go, there won't be any ambiguity in what it means when we get there. Okay, the next one is the danger of willful sin and the warning against indifference in chapter 12. And we're in a 13-chapter book. But today we're going to just focus on the first of these five warnings, which I'm calling here the danger of drifting. So let's now we're, we made it. We're now into chapter 2. Therefore, we ought to give more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. The word therefore, this means this ties to what was previously said, right? See, this points us back to the millennial glory of Christ in chapter 1 and the believer's inheritance. Because of all that, therefore, we ought to give more earnest heed to what? The things we've heard, lest why? lest at any time we should let them slip. The Greek word for slip here is parasoteros, which is used of a boat that has been untied for its moorings and is drifting away, to slip, to glide by, or pass away. Slip away from us. In other words, don't let your inheritance slip away from you. You've got a great inheritance. You're saved. Fantastic. Of course, that's done. But you also have an inheritance. Don't let it slip through your fingers. That's what he's saying. That's the first warning here. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, indeed it was, of course, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense or reward, he's going to go on, but whoa, the law was given by the angels. You remember that? This, the if, for if the word spoken, the word if there is what they call a first-class condition in the Greek. 
which in this case, according to the context, means the statement is true. It's if, we would use the word since. If in the, you know, not just if, like maybe, no, since. The word, you follow me? Since would have been, a, in my mind, a better translation. But in the, the Greek, they have four conditions for the ifs. But anyway, this is a first-class condition. means that the statement is true. If the law through the angels proved steadfast, and it did prove steadfast. That's the point. You with me? Every transgression just means received what? A just recompense of reward. Reward, okay? Reward is the issue at hand. Now, the sentence isn't finished. We're going to continue here. Physical punishment. The two sons of Aaron, remember the Old Testament, Nadab, Nadab and Abihu, they disobeyed the Mosaic law by burning the incense improperly. What happened to them? They were struck dead. That mean they're unsaved? No. Just means they were taken out of the ballgame. The rebels, Korah, Dathan, Abiram. You remember Edward G. Robinson in the, okay, right? Okay. Led a revolt against the supremacy of Aaron as being the high priest. Remember all that? And God judged them by having the earth open up and swallow them and their families. Woo. Judgment was very, very physical. You read. Achan, and, uh, after Jericho, remember, he, 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 he disobeyed the law and he was stoned to death. Joshua 7. Stoned to death. Well, if that happened to the angels, even the angels that sinned, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken of by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him? See, if that happened to what, for information that came from angels, and we have information that came from even higher levels than that, ooh, are we more on the hook than ever? Yes, absolutely, that's the point. But there's a lot more to learn here. How shall we escape, the writer says, if we neglect it was confirmed unto us. You see the first person plural there? The writer's putting himself in the same category. And we're together? You see what that means? Okay. By the way, another small point, but it's interesting. That was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. In other words, both the readers and the author were not first person uh, eyewitnesses. It wasn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Paul would in that category. He's putting himself in that category in any case. The great salvation. What on earth does that refer to? You know, if we, how shall we, if we neglect so great a salvation, that refers to its future aspect, not its past aspect. That's pretty obvious, I think. Not past justification, its future aspect. If we neglect, oh, that's a chilling word. Let's take a look at that. The word is amelio which means to become apathetic, to have an attitude of indifference, to have no care or concern for it. Wasn't that what Esau did to his birthright with Jacob? And what happened? He lost his birthright. And after it was granted, he came back weeping. Can I get another blessing? No, it's done. Done deal, buddy. Sorry. Didn't lose his sonship. He's still a son of Jacob. But, whoops. I mean, son of Isaac, excuse me. But anyway... These, uh, these are people who have salvation. Salvation is in their possession, but they are becoming indifferent to it. How do you think God feels about that? He gave His Son to die on the cross. He expects you to regard that, to be excited about that, to be grateful for that, not to say, oh, boy, that's pretty good. That's pretty cool. See, the tragedy is most of us in today's society, well, we've got our get-out-of-hell-free card, 
called justification. So we put our feet on the desk and, boy, I'm, I'm saved. Hope you are, but I'm saved. Hey, I often ask the audience, how many of you are saved? The hands will go up and say, what have you done with it? Why did God save you? Did he accomplish his purpose in saving you? What was his purpose? You need to find out. The law was given by God to Moses through angels, but although it came through angels, anyone who disobeyed it received a just punishment. How much more will this be true if we neglect a salvation mediated through the Son? Oh boy. Oh boy. See, that's what got in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken of by the Lord? A great Welsh preacher once challenged. I have a question to ask. I can't answer it. You can't answer it. Even God can't answer it. That's quite a question, isn't it? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That was his text. You can't answer that. I can't answer it. Even God can't. It's a rhetorical question. God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. See, God also bearing them witness. It's really stacking up. Not only from the Son, but God bearing them witness with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost. This probably applies to the events at Pentecost. The point of application is that the revelation that comes through the Son carries far more solemn obligations for the recipients than revelation mediated through angels or even men. But it gets authenticated three different ways. First, in the original announcement, it was spoken of by the Lord, okay. It's initially declared by the Son Himself, not an angel, but the Son. Second, it had continuous convincing propagation that was authenticated by those who heard Him speak the Word, meaning the apostles. And the author excludes himself from that group. It was confirmed to us, and that would include the author, by them that heard. Even Paul met with Peter and so forth and compared notes and what have you. The author, unlike all the other apostles, was not an eyewitness to what Jesus had said, at least in his ministry. He was an eyewitness later, but that's a little different situation. Third, it was further authenticated through the signs, wonders, and powers and gifts. There are four divine authentications. Signs refers to miracles that reveal and have a divine purpose and bear witness of the person's claims. That's one thing. Wonders emphasize the fact that they attract attention and cause amazement. Powers show that these miracles came through a source of divine power. They were supernatural. And gifts are divine enablements. So those are just subtle differences, and I won't bore you with the Greek and all that. We'll just keep moving. A common misconception is that the book of Acts, that all the believers were doing all kinds of miracle signs and wonders. That's commonly believed that only ones who perform miracles were the apostles or apostolic legates those appointed to do so by the apostles by laying on of hands. And this, and this passage indicates that these signs, wonders, and so forth were done by eyewitnesses, not by the next generation of believers. That's the implication of what it's saying here. The spiritual gifts were according to His own will, because God decides who gets which gifts. Right? He gives the gifts severally as He will. That's in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, for those who want to get into that. So what's the, let's summarize warning number one of five. Get with it. Don't be negligent. That seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Paul had an intense sense of urgency. You know, Paul was paranoid. He wrote the book on eternal security. He wrote Romans 8 and so forth. But he had a mentality that he's in a race. And I'll just pick four examples. There are many others. 1 Corinthians 9. 
Paul's writing to the Corinthians, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may be obtained. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we, an incorruptible. He's just getting warmed up. He goes on here. See, so, so run that ye may obtain. What is he going? I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Oh boy. Paul is afraid of what? What do you mean, passed away? What was Paul afraid of? Losing his salvation? Absolutely not. You can tell Timothy, I know in whom I believe, that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. No, he couldn't lose that if he tried. What's he afraid of losing? His inheritance. His life depended on not being cast away. Saved, sure, but boy, did you blow it. Solomon did. King Saul did. Demas did. You can make a list of people who started great but didn't finish well. Paul wants to finish well. It's not how you start the race, it's how you finish the race that counts. Let's look at his letter to the Philippians. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Reminds me of the Ferrari racer. First thing he did is take the rearview mirror and throw it out the window. What's behind us doesn't matter. That was his attitude. <laughs> I press toward the mark for the prize. His salvation? No, of course not. Not justification. He's talking about getting as much glory as he can earn. Fair game. Second Timothy, to his protege Timothy, he says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown. A crown. That's, that's not a gift. That's earned. It's a gift, yes, but he earned it. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. That's one of five crowns specifically specified in the Scriptures. There may be others. In the book of Hebrews, we're going to encounter when we get to chapter 12. The writer will say, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. There he goes again. You don't run a race with a, bag, uh, with a, a pack on your back. You want to shed the baggage you don't need to win the race. All of us in here should probably have some baggage we need to shed, don't we? Let's continue with the angels here in Hebrews 2. For unto the angels hath he not put into subjection the world to come wherever we speak. The world to come. We're talking about a world to come. This is not the cosmos, which is often used for this term. Not the eon or the age that's used in Matthew 13, but it's the okonomi, which is the habitable place. It occurs 15 times in the New Testament, 13 times it refers to the earth, the inhabited earth. It's the earth in the millennial kingdom, what we're seeing here. Matthew 19 makes that clear. 
See, but the angels he hath not put the world in. He didn't put the world in subjection to the angels. The angels presently minister, and there's lots of verses on that. That will be superseded by Christ and his companions, his koinonos, his metakoi. Those deemed worthy at the judgment seat of Christ will reign. Revelation 3 makes that clear. Revelation 21 makes that clear. Those that will rule. There's going to be two kinds of people in the millennium. Sovereigns and subjects. And which one are you going to be? The angels are going to be judged, we know from 1 Corinthians 6. They don't, they're not going to rule, they're going to be judged. The, the, in other words, the angels never had authority over the world. One of them stepped out and usurped it, and he got himself in a lot of trouble. That's still to be all settled. Right? One usurped, but he's being dealt with. His name was Lucifer. The angels ran errands for the Lord. The spirits ministered him, but they never had authority to rule. That's a key point the writer's making here. In Colossians, he wrote, Whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye shall serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. The reward of the inheritance here we're talking about, not salvation in the, in the sense that, uh, of justification. Judgment begins with the believers. That's mentioned several times in, in 1 Peter 4 and also here. So the Son is superior to the angels in His humanity. Now that's bizarre. Sovereignty over the earth is promised to man, not the angels. When God created the earth in Genesis, man was given dominion, not the angels. God gave man dominion over the earth. Psalm 8 emphasizes that. Man lost it through sin to Satan and his angels. The Messiah regained that dominion for man. And so man will be associated with him in ruling. Now there's some objections that the writer anticipates. Paul now is going to address two objections to the fact that Christ is above the angels. That sounds pretty good, but that raises some problems. First, if Christ is above the angels, yet he became a man, which is lower than the angels, how can he still be higher than the angels while he's in the form of a man? That's a, that's a corker, isn't it? Secondly, Problem number two, Christ died. The angels don't die. So if Christ died, how can that make him better than the angels? Those are the objections. How are they going to deal with? Paul's going to demonstrate that it is his humiliation and suffering which is the cause for his exaltation and his glory. His inheritance came about because of his willingness to lower himself, become a man, and subject himself voluntarily, even unto death on man's behalf. Wow. And that His glory goes beyond all these things, far beyond everything that you can imagine. Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verse 6, But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or son of man that thou visitest him? That's Psalm 8, very famous passage. What is man that thou art mindful of him? The puny man. Why, you know, why give him all this? And the son of man that thou visitest him. This is not talking about Adam, by the way, because Adam was a son of God, not son of Adam. We we're all sons of Adam. Because Adam was a son of God. Paul uses the term the last Adam as a title of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. And now he's still quoting from Psalm 8, verse 5. Made us a little, this is widely misunderstood, brachus, 
means short, small, or little, but it can mean it in one of two ways. It can be little of place, like a short distance, a little distance. Or it can be of time, a short time, for a little while. And that's the way it's being used here. Made him for a little while lower than the angels. Okay? Make more sense? It's quoted in Philippians 2. That's why it causes a number of people confusion. It's the, it's the, it's the short, it's time shortness that it's in view here in the Greek. Puny man. See, in the middle of the metacosm, every, the whole cosmos, there is a macrocosm, how big it is, the physical universe, and there is the microcosm, how small can it get. Man is in the middle, right in the middle of this. Both are finite, by the way. That is the incredible discovery of 20th century science. Put man, as far as he can reach, in the middle. And let's make size horizontal. Small to the left, big to the right. You get bigger and bigger and bigger, largeness, you're dealing with astronomy and astrophysics. But you discover, the great discovery of 20th century science is that the universe is not infinite, it's finite. It is finite. That's what gives rise to the Big Bang and all those things. Okay, go, let's go the small way. You would think it could get small, infinitely small. It turns out you can't. There's a point at which it can't get any smaller. That's, it, it, there's a, everything is made up of an indivisible unit. That's why they call it quanta. They're called quanta, quantum physics, subatomic particles. Smallness has a limit that is staggering its implications. That's why some of the early physicists discovered that committed suicide. They, they, they understood it well enough to realize they couldn't handle it. The entire universe is made up of units that cannot be divided. It's digital. Now, take the atom for an example. We always say in school we have a nucleus of, say, a, a proton, and around it goes an electron. Okay, this is not the scale, obviously. Yeah, right. The nucleus is 10 to the minus 13 centimeters approximately in diameter. The orbit of the electron is about 10 to the minus 8, which is a lot, you know, it's five, 10 to the fifth bigger, right? You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.